off and the clock has started. Here we go. Welcome to 20 Minutes You'll Never Get Back. I'm Graham, your announcer, and I'm way better than that phony baloney artificial lack of intelligence guy who tried to start the show last week. <laughs> Fighting words, Graham. <laughs> Greetings, everybody. Greetings to all of you. and <laughs> Welcome to 20 Minutes You'll Never Get Back. I am still Doug Prezak. Welcome to the show. And if you're new to this podcast, well, then you've missed 117 of them. <laughs> you've got some catching up to do. And if you're a regular listener, well, thanks for downloading this nonsense. More importantly, if you've been listening since episode one, well, I need to say thanks for loaning me 2,340 minutes of your time. (laughs) That's 39 hours or a little over one and a half days. (laughs) Oh my God. I know. (laughs) And speaking of regular listeners, uh, hello to Adelaide, South Australia, Milpitas, California, Stockholm, Sweden, Mi amigos in Santiago, Chile, uh, Washington, D.C., Amsterdam, and once again, Barataria in Trinidad, Tobago. <laughs> I still don't get why the Caribbean's listening to this stuff. If I, were in the, if I were in the Caribbean, I wouldn't be listening to him. But you know who else is still missing from our list? That's right, Luxembourg. You know, I know my executive director of states and territory acquisitions, Catherine, is working on it. And somehow with her superpowers of uh, influence, uh, we're going to be adding Luxembourg to the list. But until then, maybe this will help a little bit as I turn this over to Amy with a brief Luxembourg lesson. Thanks, Doug. Luxembourg is a landlocked country in northwestern Europe. It's one of the world's smallest countries, and it is bordered by Belgium on the west and north, France on the south, and Germany on the northeast and east. It's mostly rural, with a dense forest and nature parks in the north, rocky gorges of the Mullethal region in the east, and the Moselle River Valley in the southeast. Its capital, Luxembourg City, is famed for its fortified medieval old town which is perched on sheer cliffs. Luxembourg has a population of 660,924 citizens, and it's our hope here at 20 minutes you'll never get back that one of those 660,000 folks will listen to this podcast and join our family of countries. <laughs> How is that for a travel log? <laughs> well, fingers crossed, we'll get Luxembourg someday. Oh, and get this, this always happens. You know, I do a podcast on a particular subject, and then within a couple of days of that topic, whatever it is, some form of it ends up in the news. You know, last week's episode, the uh, the one about ice cream, well, in the news this past week, this story broke. Bayakuya was created by the Japanese ice cream brand Salado, and it costs a whopping 873,400 Japanese yen, which is approximately $6,305 per serving. Ouch. The ice cream was awarded the title of the world's most expensive ice cream, by the Guinness World Records. <laughs> it's apparently, it's made with a, a rare white truffle that's only grown in Alba, Italy, and that cost uh, $6,905 a pound. Uh, the ice cream also includes Parmigiano-Reggiano <laughs> and sake lees. Now, what's a sake lee, you asked? Well, it's the residual sediment produced during the sake fermentation. <laughs> Yum. <laughs> Salado hired Tadayoshi Yamada. He's the head chef at uh, Rivi in Osaka, Japan. They hired him to create a fusion of European and Japanese ingredients in the form of ice cream. (laughs) 
A Salado representative said it took over one and a half years to develop with a lot of trials and errors to get the taste right. But the Guinness World Records title made the effort all worth it. I chuckle because I just cannot get over uh, residual sediment in my ice cream. (laughs) The uh, dessert is available for sale in Japan and can be shipped directly to consumers. But buyers are instructed to pour the white truffle as the ice cream softens before mixing it with a handcrafted metal spoon that's included in the package. Salado also recommends pairing the ice cream with sake or a fine French white wine. (laughs) So let's see what kind of news happens after today's show. (laughs) Well, it's going to start with this. I had pancakes for dinner last night. Don't judge. Okay, everyone needs a good breakfast for dinner every once in a while. And come on, admit it. Now you're thinking about pancakes, too. That's right. Now, they weren't just regular pancakes. No, 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 no. These were power protein pancakes. (laughs) Apparently, they gave me more power and protein. (laughs) At least that's what the box says. Regardless, while I was trying to figure out where all the syrup I just put on my pancakes disappeared to, I got to wondering about pancakes. You know what I did this morning while uh, I wasn't having pancakes because I had them last night? Yeah, you know what I did. Research. And why? So you don't have to. Let's talk pancakes. Pancakes have been around for centuries, eons, if you will. (laughs) And you can find a version in just about every culture. Experts, just how do you become an expert in pancakes? Anyway, these experts believe that people enjoyed pancakes as far back as 30,000 years ago in the Stone Age. In fact, researchers found pancakes in the stomach of Otzi the Iceman. (laughs) He's a famous human remains that date back to more than 5,000 years. Why? The first written records of pancakes come from the ancient Greeks and Romans. Around 500 BC, the Athenian poet Cratinus described, everybody knows Cratinus, right? He described it as, quote, a flat cake, hot and shedding morning dew. <laughs> Yum. <laughs> the, the pancakes back then were made from wheat flour, olive oil, honey, and curdled milk. <laughs> oh, jeez. I hope nobody is trying to listen to this podcast while they're eating breakfast because between the fermented sediment and the curdled milk pancakes, <laughs> well, some 600 years later in the late second century, the Greek physician Galen, he included a recipe in his book on the properties of foodstuffs that's pretty similar to how Canadian griddle cakes are prepared today. The recipe for these girdle cakes, that's what the Athenians called them, girdle cakes. We call them griddle cakes. Swap the swap the I and the R. Switch. Either way you want to call them. The ancient Greek Galen, he said that these are prepared with olive oil alone. The oil is placed in a frying pan that is put on a smokeless fire. And when it has become hot, the wheat and flour soaked in large amounts of water is poured into it. He also said these cakes were often enjoyed with honey. (laughs) These early examples of flat cooked things might fit our definition of a pancake, but they weren't always referred to as such. According to the Oxford Middle English Dictionary, the word pancake is derived from the Middle English pancake (laughs) or pone cake. (laughs) That took a lot to derive it from that, didn't it? And they only came into use in the medieval era. One early written example is found in Thomas Austin's two 15th century cookery books. In it, he advised readers to set a pan on the fire, pour in the batter, and let it spread to makest a pancake. (laughs) 
That's what it says. Makest a pancake. <laughs> because pancakes have a, you know, a f fairly limited ingredients and a fairly short preparation time, they have historically been a working class food. Elizabeth David, in her uh, 1977 book, English Bread and Yeast Cookery, she said that pancakes provided a means of using cheaper meals and flours, such as barley, buckwheat, oatmeal, which were not suitable for proper bread. Now, technically, pancakes are part of the batter bread family. Their composition is more liquid than flour with a runny batter that replaces the dough, which requires kneading. But they're still part of the bread family. The pancake status as a food of the people stretches back for centuries. In his 1750 cookbook, Country Housewives Family Companion, <laughs> author William Ellis praised pancakes as, quote, one of the cheapest and more serviceable dishes of a farmer's family in particular, because all the ingredients of the common ones are of his own produce and are ready at hand on all occasions. Well, that just makes sense. Well, can you believe it? We've reached the halfway point of the show, and believe it or not, I have another <laughs> another 10 minutes of pancakes you don't want to miss. You know, like, is Pancake Day a real thing? Uh, pancakes around the world? And why is that first pancake always uh, a bust? So don't go away. And, and for our listeners and Down Under, here you go. You know what's special about Sunday mornings, Gertrude? That's right, making pancakes. And everyone just loves Mrs. Peppy's pancakes, especially when they're made with Peppy Sayers buttermilk from the churn and cultured salted butter and drizzled in Peppy's delectable maple butter. Gertrude says they're perfectly fluffy and utterly delicious. You can make Mrs. Peppy's pancakes every Sunday with your family. Order their pancake pack today at peppesaya.com.au. You know what they don't have in my grocery store? Mrs. Pepe's Pancake Mix. <laughs> I would love to try some uh, Mrs. Pepe's Pancake Mix. I wonder how it compares to the power protein pancake mix that we have here. It's probably peppier. <laughs> I'm just saying to my listeners in uh, Australia, you know, if you want to send me some uh, Mrs. Pepe's Pancake Mix, well, you know. <laughs> All righty, let's start here. Pancake Day. Now, this isn't one of those, you know, corporate publicity things uh, like today is National Hot Dog on a Stick Day or National Blue M&M Day. No, Pancake Day is legit. Pancake Day started out as Shrove Tuesday. Shrove Tuesday normally falls on the day before the start of Lent. Now, Lent is the 40-day period leading up to Easter where Christians would traditionally fast, eat sparingly, and avoid celebratory festivities. People were not allowed to eat animal products like milk, butter, eggs, etc. To prevent food from you know, going to waste, Christians would prepare for their fasting by using up any foods that they might be tempted by over the next 40 days. This would include all that butter and eggs and flour and sugar. So, hmm, what would be the best way to use those things up for a last meal before fasting? <laughs> you get the picture. Well, during the Middle Ages, Shrove Tuesday actually took on more of a party-like feel with English peasants spending the day gorging themselves on pancakes. In many towns, a shriving bell was rung to call villagers to confession. One local legend tells of a housewife who was still busy cooking her pancakes one morning when a particularly zealous vicar rang the doorbell kind of early in the morning. Still in her apron, 
She headed to the door with her pan in her hand, and she was flipping the pancake as she went, so as not to uh, you know, spoil the efforts of her labor there. To commemorate the woman's dedication, some English towns host pancake flipping contests and races, the oldest of which is still held annually in Olney, Buckinghamshire. So a little research inside of my bigger research, I, I took a look, and yes, this pancake flipping race is still happening. As a matter of fact, the next pancake race is on Shrove Tuesday, which is February 13th in 2024. The registration is currently open. You can check it out for yourself. Just go to onlypancakerace.org. That's O-L-N-E-Y, pancakerace.org. Check it out. It's a cool way. All the rules are there. They have just a women's race. They have all, all kinds of stuff. Here's a thought. Maybe I should uh, do episode 150 from Olney right during the pancake flipping race. <laughs> that would be a cool thing. I'll have, to, I'll have to think about that one. The pancake remains one of the easiest foods to cook. Now, while the base pancake recipe is largely the same around the world, different countries have found ways to make the food their own. There is a food writer and cookbook author out there named Melissa Clark. She says, quote, what links pancakes from different ingredients in different cultures is their flat shape, which helps them cook through quickly. They're relatively simple and their smallish size makes them easy to eat. Here in the United States, pancakes come covered with maple syrup and butter. In France, they have thin crepes that are made from wheat flour without any kind of rising agent, so they uh, stay thin and flat. But what about the rest of the world? Well, let's go on a little pancake expedition. Here are the go-to pancakes from around the world. Music, please. In the U.S. and Canada, of course, it's the classic buttermilk pancake. These are often eaten for breakfast or dinner, don't judge, with a butter and syrup, of course, pure Canadian maple syrup. The secret weapon to its signature thick and fluffy texture is baking powder. In Austria, it's the Kaiserschmarrn. It's fluffy pieces of caramelized pancake named after the Kaiser Franz Joseph I of Austria. It's often served with nuts, raisins, apples, and other sweet ingredients. Australia has its pikelets or picklets. I don't, I don't know which it is. They're uh, petite, small, thick pancakes that are popular as a snack and are served with afternoon tea. Blini or blintzes, they're the faves in Eastern Europe. They're thin pancakes common in many Eastern European countries. They're thicker than French crepes and they're made with wheat or buckwheat flour yeast and filled with sweet or savory stuffing. England likes its pancakes with sugar and lemon. These are thin pancakes made with plain flour, eggs, milk, Traditionally, they're topped with lemon juice and sugar. Like the North American pancakes, the folks in UK drizzle it with golden syrup. Or like the European pancakes, wrap them up around savory fillings and eat it as a main course. The panukaku, we're going to go with that. The panukaku comes from Finland. They're baked in a rectangular or circular pan to a golden fluffy pancake. You can then cut it up and serve it in single serving slices and top it with powdered sugar, cream, fruit, or other sweet fixings. Well, France, you know, has the crepe. Their uh, pancakes are thin, large, and are flipped over and cooked on both sides, then folded over sweet fillings like chocolate and fruit or savory cheeses. <laughs> no. And sauteed vegetables. Oh, hell no. Greece favors their Teganites, which are thin pancakes traditionally topped with honey, cinnamon, yogurt, Iceland, welcome to the family, Iceland. Iceland has their 
Ponukaka. <laughs> Ponukaka. Oh. <laughs> P-O-N-N-U-K-A-K-A. How would you pronounce it if you don't live in Iceland? Ponukaka, which is a crepe-like pancake cooked on a very special Icelandic pancake pan. The okonomiyaki comes from Japan. It is a savory pancake. It comes from the word okonomi, meaning what do you want, and yaki, meaning grilled. <laughs> so what do you want grilled? Malaysia pancakes are called apam balik, meaning turnover or folded pancake. They're usually made with rice flour blend and then stuffed with sweet peanut filling. The Netherlands has their pannenkoeken, or Dutch babies. They're a sweet souffléed pancake, often baked in large, bigger than a 12-inch pan, topped with sugar and fruit. Scotland has Scottish pancakes. <laughs> Original. Scottish pancakes are small and thick, often called drop scones. Sweden's pancake is a ragmunk. It's a savory potato pancake. And lastly, on our world tour is South America. They enjoy their cachapas. These are corn pancakes that are usually folded over fresh melted cheese. And if I said that wrong, I just know my friends from Chile will let me know. <laughs> now, if I didn't include your country, I apologize, but you know what you like. And if I listed a pancake from your country and you completely disagree, well, blame the internet. <laughs> And wrapping up this uh, pancake expose, why is the first pancake always a dud? Yours may not be, but I know there are some of you who are saying, uh-huh, Doug, I get you. You know, it doesn't cook right. Uh, it gets burned. It sticks to the skillet. And when I'm making pancakes, I usually end up with the sacrificial pancake, you know. After that, things get better. Now, if this has happened to you, here's why it happens. You know, if you're like me, you, you spray the pan with some Pam or you throw down some butter or some oil, hoping it's going to keep the pancake from sticking, making it easier to flip. But uh, you know what? IHOP, the International House of Pancake, their head of culinary, Neville Pataki, he says, quote, really, though, you're just adding grease to the final product. That's why the first pancake is often webbed, lacy look on one side and a little greasier than the rest. Instead, this is what you need to do. Let the pan warm up. Then spread a little butter or oil on it and then use a paper towel to wipe off most of the excess. You see, you're seasoning the pan just like you would with a cast iron skillet. So that first pancake doesn't stick or sop up all that grease. Now, scientifically, on a molecular level, as the metal heats up, it expands. So you wipe the warm pan, you're seasoning it. Basically, you're filling in all those microscopic crevices so the wet pancake batter won't seep into it and then stick to the pan, causing all kinds of tears and nastiness when you try and flip it. As for the uneven browning of the pancake, well, your burner's to blame, mostly. Experts say sometimes it takes one pancake to adjust the temperature. When you ladle cold pancake batter onto a warm pan, the pan's temperature is going to drop. And then we flip too soon, and well, you've made a sacrificial pancake. But your pan comes back up to temperature, and the rest will be fine. Or, or so they say. So there you have it pancakes, and the end of the show. But first, what have we learned? Well, we learned that 5,000-year-old Otzi the Iceman, he liked pancakes. <laughs> we won't go into how they found out. We learned that if you're not doing anything on February 13th next year, you really should head to Olney, Buckinghamshire in England, register for the pancake flipping race, and be advised you do need to bring your own pan. And we learned that if you like white truffles, 
Parmigiano-Reggiano, and fermented sake leaves sediment in your ice cream, head to Japan and bring your checkbook. (laughs) That's going to do it for this episode number 118. Thank you very much for listening and tuning in. I always appreciate it. And I'll talk to you next time on 20 Minutes. You'll never, ever, ever get back. Bye-bye. Somebody pass me the uh, syrup. Hi, it's me again, Doug. I want to take up a couple more seconds of your time just to remind you, if you want to stay informed of when uh, the next podcast is posted, all you need to do is sign up at uh, on that Instagram machine. It's at uh, 20MYNGB, 20MYNGB, and that means 20 minutes you'll never get back. Uh, if you sign up there, you'll uh, always see when the next podcast is uploaded. And if you want to leave some comments, by all means, please do go to the website at 20minutespodcast.com. So it's 20minutespodcast.com. And uh, you can uh, leave your comments there. It also tells you how you can be an announcer for the show. So take take a look at those two things if you like and stay informed. And I'll, as always, thank you very much for listening to uh, 20 Minutes. You'll never get back. Bye-bye. <laughs>